This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. President Trump announced Tuesday that the United States was pulling out of the multi-nation Iran nuclear deal. Trump seemed to say that even though the deal was in place, that Iran was continuing its work towards a nuclear weapon. And that admission is in direct contrast with what has been brought forward by the International Atomic Energy Administration and his own Secretary of State Mike Pompeo during his congressional hearings. So with this news, Trump announced that significant sanctions would be put back Back in place against Iran. We will be instituting the highest level of economic sanction. Any nation that helps Iran in its quest for nuclear weapons could also be strongly sanctioned by the United States. America will not be held hostage to nuclear blackmail. And all of this despite the request of other world leaders to stay in the deal. With more on the impact of this decision, we are joined in studio by Philip Nichols, professor of social responsibility in business and professor of legal studies in business here at the Wharton School. And joining me on the phone is Nadir Habibi, who's a professor of practice in economics of the Middle East at Brandeis University. Phil, as always, great seeing you. Thank you for coming in. Thanks, Dan. Good seeing you. Nadir, great to have you on the phone with us today. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. So, Nadir, I will I will ask for your reaction to what happened yesterday first. Yes. Well, um, I would say the the extent of the sanctions that President Trump has announced and uh, the overall package that he has announced it was a little bit surprising to me because I thought he might uh, respond a little milder. But uh, this is quite a strong, and uh, its uh, consequences are, uh, I think, quite severe for Iran and for international community as a whole in the region. I would, um, Dan's pointing at me, sorry, not here. <laughs> yes. Uh, hi. Um, the one thing I would uh, um, caveat that with a little bit is that President Trump is no stranger to hyperbole. And in fact, his, his apologists frequently tell us, don't take him literally. And so the the phrase, you know, severest possible economic sanctions, I think it's still really unclear what that means. And I think there's a lot of – there's a lack of clarity in terms of what kind of sanctions are going to be imposed. So I, I, I agree it was, a, you know, typical, typical Trumpian um, bluster. Yeah. But I'm not sure – I'm still not sure about the substance of what – President Trump has proposed for us. And, and I guess to a degree, that's that's a to be determined to see exactly what the sanctions actually are. Obviously, we've seen reporting on it, but also the potential. And he said it in his remarks yesterday of the fact that he is willing at some point to kind of revisit putting a new deal in place. And again, yeah. whether, you know, whether it actually is the case or not, we will wait and see. But again, you know, we're, we're talking about uh, a very important uh uh, section of the Middle East, when you're talking about Iran and Israel, that you really need to make sure that whatever you do, you're dotting all the I's and you're crossing the T's. Which hasn't been done. Yes. Well, may I comment? Yes, go ahead, Nadir. Yes. Um, I think um, if you look at the unilateral sanctions that the U.S. had in place uh, before the nuclear agreement, it gives us some uh, clarity as to what might uh, emerge in the next uh, few months. Um, Aides to President Trump has said, have said that uh, there would be a return to non-oil sanctions in 90 days, 
uh, and return to oil-related sanctions in 180 days. So the immediate yeah. impact in the next um, 90 days is minimal in terms of action. But the psychological impact on firms that are doing business with Iran is going to be um, observed in the, even in the next uh, coming weeks. And obviously, uh, there would be an impact on um, Iran's European and Asian trade partners. And also, uh, I think another important impact to consider is on U.S.-European relations, because immediately after yeah. uh, the statement by President Trump, um, representative of EU Federico Mogherini came out and said that uh, European Union is committed to the nuclear agreement and uh, will try to preserve the agreement as much as possible. Uh, so th that represents a, a um, rift between U.S. and its uh, allies. Uh, I agree that uh, it is not clear how the situation might evolve. It all depends on how Iran reacts in uh, reality and whether there might be some kind of uh, um, clandestine negotiations uh, between Iran and uh, um, Europeans about uh, preserving the uh, nuclear agreement and perhaps uh, some additional agreements. Uh, Iran has already indicated that it is willing to discuss those, although refusing to say that it will soften its position on its um, missile technology or its uh, policy in the Middle East. I, I think that an interesting um, aspect of the psychological reaction among Europeans is Germany where one has the um, German trade minister telling German firms to start winding up operations, uh, where Volkswagen has announced that because they have a manufacturing plant in Alabama, they fall within the scope of U.S. jurisdiction and, and need to adhere to U.S. sanctions. And at the same time, you have the German foreign minister, the German president, and the European Union all saying, as Nader pointed out, that we're going to stand with the um, uh, accord and that, that business as usual. And I, and I don't think the negotiations between Europe and Iran will be clandestine. I think uh, my, my guess is they're going to be right out there at the open, further isolating the United States from what's really going on in, in, in the world, in the Middle East. Um, in business, etc. We are joined uh, here in studio by Philip Nichols of the Wharton School on the phone with Nadir Habibi of uh, Brandeis University. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at Damloney21. Nadir, I saw in a couple of uh, locations yesterday comments of whether or not, to a degree, that this move by President Trump is really something that has been driven uh, by Benjamin Netanyahu and his friendship with Donald Trump. Um, I believe both Israel and Saudi Arabia have had some influence on um, President Trump's decision, there is no doubt. And uh, it, I, I don't think this is something that uh, um, anyone can ignore. Um, clearly, Israel has an interest in 
containing Iran's role in the region, and it, it says um, um, a move by United States to withdraw from the nuclear agreement as a, a step towards uh, putting more pressure on Iran. And we have seen that immediately after the announcement by President Trump, there was a uh, rocket attack on uh, two or three targets in Syria, uh, which, um, according to some reports, uh, led to some casualties for Iranian troops in Syria, which means that uh, Israel is also trying to provoke a response from Iran, perhaps, at this point, uh, so that it can... Uh, sort of justify additional tension with Iran. Yeah, uh, there's no question that this is a destabilizing. I mean, it's a, you know, it's high risk. President Trump is rolling the dice um, and risk means instability. Uh, I, I, I think it's also clear that the United States can no longer be seen as an impartial actor in the Middle East, that, that the United States clearly aligns itself with the Sunni and with um, Israel. And, you know, we're, the world is going to be looking for the honest broker now. It'll be interesting to see who shakes out in terms of, of that role. And that was going to be my next question, is that what impact does that play, the United States having that kind of a role in that part of the world, which obviously, you know, we have seen for decades now has, you know, unbelievable tension going back and forth between a variety of different actors uh, in, that, in that part of the world. Phil? I, I I think that the United States now clearly would be seen as a partisan rather than as a, a honest broker between the parties in that region. Nadir? Yes, I agree. And uh, I think um, Europeans will try to de-escalate the situation, but um, the risk of... Um, sort of escalation in Syria um, is, is serious. Although uh, Iran has shown in the past two months that in response to Israeli attacks on Iranian targets, it has not responded uh, by any kind of retaliation. Uh, some argued that this was because they were waiting to see what happens in terms of U.S. decision on May 12th, which came early, mm -hmm. and that now we might see a different behavior from Iran. Yeah. But the, the reality is that Iran is aware of the asymmetry of power vis-a-vis -vis Israel. And I think um, since Russians are reluctant to support Iran in its uh, tensions with Israel, Iran might continue to remain cautious because it knows that it doesn't have uh, any advantage in uh, escalating the situation with Israel, given that Israel itself has a very strong military and it would enjoy uh, very strong U.S. support in any kind of uh, escalation with Iran in Syria. So, yes, there is a risk of uh, escalation, but uh, I think to a large extent it would be Israel and the United States that would be able to control the pattern of escalation uh, at this point. So, uh, go ahead, Phil. I'm sorry. You know, there, there's one interesting player that never gets talked about with respect to the conflicts in Syria and Iraq, and that's China. And I'm curious, I'm very curious about the role China's going to play in, the, in what we're talking about in Iran, given that um, uh, Total is working with China Oil. They're the largest oil investors in, um, in Iran right now, <clears throat> given that a lot of the financing that's occurring 
is occurring through Chinese banks. Right. It seems like China is being drawn into this in a way that very few people are paying attention to. And that makes me curious about China's role in the broader uh, Middle Eastern, which they haven't had a role in yet. In part because of the conversations that are going on between China and the U.S. about changing or developing the relationship that they've had recently? Absolutely. And, you know, China is a little bit tired of getting poked by the United States. Um, this might be a, a, a forum in which they can demonstrate to their people right. that they're not really going to get poked around a lot. This this does kind of continue, Nadir, a, a pattern we have seen uh, with President Trump over his time in office of, you know, packs that were set up by the prior administration that he has wanted to get out of. Uh, obviously, the Paris Accord, uh, the TPP, uh, also uh, now this. And, and I guess the question becomes is what does this potentially do for the U.S. in the future in terms of trying to get a pact or get a deal done? Well, um, I agree with you. It, it's, it's, uh, President Trump seems to be very committed to undoing every every agreement that uh, President Obama accomplished before. But before that, let me uh, make a comment about China. Uh, China uh, has a lot of economic trade with Iran, Saudi Arabia, and with Israel. And China's uh, policy in the Middle East so far up to now has been a policy of neutrality, promoting trade, and trying to perhaps in a limited sense use its diplomatic and economic power to reduce tensions, reduce escalations. But China has never actively taken side, and it tries to avoid taking side as much as possible. China buys significant amount of oil from Iran, from Saudi Arabia, and uh, even in the direct confrontation between these two countries, it has not taken sides. And it has expanded its economic ties with Israel in recent years. So um, I think um, it would be a new development if we see China uh, getting into the conflict between Iran and Israel by taking side. They might try to de-escalate, but they are now in a position where everyone wants to trade with them, and they seem to be very happy with their non-intervention policy. Um, as far as uh, the President Trump's uh, future agreements and whether he would be perceived as credible with respect to future agreements, I think what he's trying to accomplish is to say, when I make a promise, I will uh, fulfill my promise regardless of the cost, because uh, many advisors inside the United States have advised him not to withdraw from uh, the nuclear agreement with Iran, but he chose to do so and regardless of the damage to U.S.-European uh, relations. So in the future, I think, um, in the future, people might take him more seriously when he says something, even though it might not be in the interest of the United States. He's trying to establish that reputation, in my opinion. Right, which, which is interesting, and it's also a very interesting misunderstanding of the role of the president um, he's, he, it's an insight into how he sees that role, which is very personal, uh, you know, loyalty to him rather than loyalty to the office. Yep. And, and he, he, he may not be understanding that, that the deals that are negotiated are deals that are negotiated with the United States, not with a particular individual in the United States. And so damaging the credibility of the United States and then relying on one's personal credibility – 
is probably not a, f a really fruitful way of going forward in diplomacy. But it is an interesting insight into how this particular president sees the office. 844-942-7866 is the number if you would like to join in with your comments or questions. Dan Loney in our studios here in Philadelphia, joined by Philip Nichols of the Wharton School and Nadir Habibi of Brandeis University. Again, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get to your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Nadir, when, when this agreement was first put into place, the benefits for Iran on this side of it uh, was the financial end of it, so that they could uh, try and start to rebuild their economy. How, how, much, how much of an impact has there been from that side of the story? The impact has been positive, and that's the main reason why Iran is so interested in preserving the agreement. Uh, it was not just financial. Uh, the risk of doing business with Iran was so severe that even those who were able to take care of financial transactions were reluctant to do so. And we have seen that in the past uh, two and a half years uh, after the nuclear agreement, uh, many European firms, many Asian firms have been eager to re-engage with Iran. Uh, and if anything, the reason that um, they have not expanded their relations with Iran even more is because of the um, implicit and sometimes explicit threats by the United States and the uncertainty about the future of nuclear agreement in the almost past one year. Uh, that has uh, already caused a decline in the potential benefits of the nuclear agreement for Iran. So already, um, U.S. policy has really reduced the, um, the benefits for Iran. And moving forward, clearly, it will cause further damage to Iranian economy. But there is no doubt the agreement was uh, beneficial for Iran, especially because when we look at the impact on Iran during the last two years of the agreement on uh, 2013 and 2014, and the, and the impact was very severe on trade and both domestic production. That, so when I heard this yesterday, um, I was looking for the silver lining. And, and the, the things that Nadir just told us about you know, it made me wonder whether Europe, which is committed to stability, uh, as well as the economic benefits to both Europeans and the broader community, might finally be pushed into developing institutions that are resilient from the, the vagaries of U.S. policy. Um, U.S. has been a very dependable ally for a long time, but no longer. Mm -hmm. and, and if such institutions are created... Um, if the United States can no longer pose a threat to the ongoing development of stability and stable relationships in that part of the world with Europe and with Asia, then there might be a, a, a deeper integration of Iranian people into the global system and a, a greater desire on the part of Iranian people not to be like other peoples, but to be a more productive and beneficial member of the global community. And so that, that is a, that I, I, I understand that the, the good money is on this being a destabilizing. Yeah. But I, there's a possibility here 
that the world reacts in a way that we're not predicting that could actually make things better and stronger in that part of the world. And, and it becomes a very important time for a, a lot of countries right now. Obviously, President Trump is talking about trying to you know, ease tensions that have been there for decades between North and South Korea. Obviously, you know, he says that he wants to, you know, try and redo this deal to make it a better deal for everybody altogether. Uh, I mean, we are looking at, even though it probably isn't talked about enough, a very important period of time in terms of the global spectrum in terms of countries working together and and really talking with another and building up trade and building up partnerships in the future, Phil. Yeah, it's kind of like a post-Great Recession uh, rebuild like we had after the Great Depression 50 years ago, 60, 70, you know, in the last century. And and because we're in the middle of it, we don't always step back and look at the institution building that's going on. But it is – there's a lot of things going on all over the world, and this will have an effect on that. Nadir? Yes, I agree. Uh, already, I think some European countries have indicated that they are trying to develop uh, mechanisms for trading with Iran without using the U.S. dollar, because uh, use of U.S. dollar allows United States to impose sanctions and restrictions. But if they can find some other currency, then they are not... Um, at least for transactions, US, using U.S. institutions, therefore transactions can go forward. So I, I agree. If in this, when moving forward in the next few months, U.S. remains isolated and Europeans can move forward, Europeans, Russia and China, by continuing and preserving the nuclear agreement and expanding their economic ties, then this um, um, speculation would, would come true. And uh, it would, the damage to Iran's economy and the damage to Iran's ability to uh, engage with the global economy would be limited. There would still be some negative impact, but it would not be as severe as expected. But, uh, uh, but, yeah. can, you, but can you do that? Can you try and do some of these deals that you're talking about not using the U.S. dollar when the U.S. dollar is so prevalent in some form or fashion in pretty much every country around the globe? Well, uh, yes, with, in some trades. For example, Iran is already engaging in trade with China uh, using Chinese currency for some of its transactions. And we see that uh, small firms in Europe, in Asia, which do not have uh, extensive business ties with the United States, uh, would be able to continue their transactions with Iran because the U.S. sanctions would affect companies that would like to have access to U.S. market. They cannot do anything to a company that doesn't have any business dealings with the United States. So in that sense, um, we would see a shift from multinational countries, uh, firms such as Airbus and Boeing, to companies that uh, do not have a lot of dealings with, with Iran. And we might even see an attempt by European governments to compensate some of their corporations for any damage that they might suffer as a result of the United States financial penalties. I believe uh, they have, some governments have already said that they would protect their businesses um, who are dealing with Iran. Uh, because the economic benefit of uh, investments with Iran and uh, trade with Iran are su- substantial for some of these countries. Yeah, as a trade purist, I, I listen to this and I, I shudder because I've seen 
trade distortions being popping up all over the place. But that's probably going to happen no matter what kind of regulatory environment we live in. And I think Nadir's point, or I was observation about um, we pay publicly, we pay so much attention to firms like Boeing, uh, uh, firms like Total. But there's a huge, you know, the three areas where most of Iran's newfound cash went to were airline, pharma, and um, oil and gas production. Yeah. So there's a huge industry in spare parts for airlines, um, yep. huge industry in bills and drilling equipment and pipe and pipe laying. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if this shifts out of – I mean, the U.S. is the premier oil extraction technology in the world. Are we creating a regulatory environment in which a new expertise will develop outside of the control of the United States? And these are interesting questions about what kind of distortions are going to be created with this um, sanction. Great having you both with us. Philip, thanks for coming in. Greatly Always. appreciate it. Nadir, great to have you on the phone with us today. Thank, Thank you for your you. time. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Philip Nichols from here at the Wharton School. Nadir Habibi at Brandeis. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.